New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The common lament in these postmodern times is that there is not enough time. We're overly busy and overworking. We are allowing our gadgets, such as smartphones and tablets, absorb our attention. We jump down the rabbit hole of emails, texting, and engaging in social media, letting them take up more and more of our time, so we spend less and less time connecting with ourselves and with one another in deep and meaningful ways. Many studies have shown that all of these things prevent us from having the time to regenerate and recharge and to tap into our innate wisdom. Today we'll be exploring how we can reconnect and live a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder with our guest, Ariana Huffington. Ariana Huffington is the chair, president, and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post Media Group. She's a nationally syndicated columnist and author of many books. In May 2005, she launched the Huffington Post, a news and blog site that quickly became one of the most widely read, linked to, and frequently cited media brands on the Internet in 2012, the site won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. Originally from Greece, she moved to England when she was 16 and graduated from Cambridge University with an MA in economics. Her most recent book is Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. Join us for the next hour as we explore redefining success with our guest, Ariana Huffington. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ariana, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you. Thank you for coming. I'd like to begin the way you begin your book. You got literally stopped in your tracks and, uh, and, and had a fall, and then you it caused you to reassess success. Just what is it? So can you describe that event? Yes, it was April 6th, uh, 2007, and I had just come back home with my oldest daughter after a tour of colleges. She was ready to pick a college to apply to or many colleges to apply to. And uh, our agreement was that I would not look at my BlackBerry while we were together. So what happened is that we would... Um, be together all day and then we would check into a hotel she would go to sleep and I would start working 
It was like two years into launching the Huffington Post. I was working really hard, um, both on the editorial side and finding investors, etc. So bottom line, I woke up, I collapsed from exhaustion, hit my head on my desk, and uh, broke my cheekbone, got four stitches on my right eye. And it started me, first of all, on this journey of going from doctor to doctor to find out if there was anything really wrong with me medically, you know, a brain tumor, whatever. When you have a collapse like that, they want to do every MRI echogram test. And in these doctor's waiting rooms, I asked myself the question, what is success? Because by a conventional definition of success, I was successful. I had just been chosen for the Time 100 Most Influential People. I was on covers of magazines. But by any sane definition of success, <laughs> I was clearly not successful. If I was collapsing and finding myself in a pool of my own blood. So that was the beginning of this journey for me that that culminated in the publication of thrive and and the journey was really about redefining success both for me and for all of us and i started thinking how if we go back to the greek philosophers who asked the question what is a good life they answered it very differently than we are answering it today in fact today we don't even ask the question we don't ask a question, and often it's reflected as if you have a lot of money or if you have a lot of power, that that means you are successful. But exactly. you're, you're saying that there is a, you call it the third metric. metric. Uh, like if you, you use uh, the metaphor of a stool, if we only have two uh, legs on the stool, then how are we going to uh, keep it in balance? And you're talking about that third leg of that stool. Exactly. So I feel that the two metrics of money and power are completely insufficient um, for a life where we thrive, where we flourish, where we find real happiness. And uh, that we need that third metric, which consists of four pillars, actually. The first one is our well-being. Because if we run our life in a way that undermines our well-being and our health, then clearly this is incredibly self-destructive. This kind of goes back to that idea that we always hear on airplanes that talk about, well, put your own oxygen mask on first and then help another. Exactly. So, it's, so you're talking about well-being. That's a very important part of our journey to real, true success. Very important part. And and we have the data now that show that uh, a lot of people in successful jobs are actually undermining their health along the way. Uh, in fact, 75% of uh, um, our healthcare costs are for chronic, preventable, stress-related diseases. Right. And women have... Um, much harder time processing stress. Why is that? What have well, you discovered we have the, about we that? We have the latest uh, data that show that women in stressful jobs have a 40% greater threat of heart disease and a 60% greater threat of diabetes. And the reason, I think, is that men can kind of watch a football game and forget about the stress. And we women 
There's a kind of perfectionism in us. There's a, a way that we always want to be the perfect little girl that gets everything perfect. And as a result, we internalize stress more. We take things more personally. And again, we are talking generalities. There are many exceptions when we talk about men and women. And in my experience, it, it's like I know that I tune into the whole environment. I never quite leave the environment. It's not like just watching the football game, but it's like, what is going on with other people in the room? What do I need to do? You never really quite leave it as a woman in general. Is That is my That experience. is such a good point. You know, um, we may be watching a football game, and if you're sad, I may kind of sense it, and I may pick it up. Uh, while often, you know, men may just um, absorb themselves in the game and forget everything around them. So you're right. We do pick up many other things that are going on in our environment. You know, there's a, something that you call in in your book, and you picked up this phrase that burnout is a civilization disease. disease. It's like, oh my goodness. Burnout is—it's not—we're not listed that in in our healthcare system, but it is an a burnout is an actual big thing now. Yes, it's actually um, a phrase by a, a Belgian philosopher, Pascal Chabot, who said burnout is uh, the disease of our civilization, and it is a mirror um, about the sort of the way we are running our lives and what we value. So it's it's something that um, is basically telling us that the way we've been running our lives is unsustainable. To use the AA, the Alcoholics Anonymous term, our lives have become unmanageable. And we see that reflected in our politics where things have become more dysfunctional than than they've been for a very long time. We see it in our healthcare system, and, uh, and we see it in our own lives where people basically end up with uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, right. heart disease, not because of genetic reasons. I mean, that's becoming a small percentage of right. those um, instances, but because of the way we're leading our lives, the lifestyle choices we make. What about the hyperconnectivity that's going on today? We are so plugged into um, all sorts of things, you know, tweeting, texting, emails. Uh, our, we, our, we walk around with our phones all the time. Uh, can you say something about that hyperconnectivity? Yes, I think the hyperconnectivity is is a big part of the problem. That's why I have a whole section about it in the book because I know from my own life that I had to actually uh, be very deliberate in. Uh, um, learning to disconnect from my technologies, all the massive amount of uh, Blackberries, iPhones, iPads that I surround myself with and reconnect with myself. And uh, in fact, uh, we even launched an app for that, which is kind of <laughs> ironic to use, a, to use <laughs> an app an to help app you to disconnect help us get from away technology. From apps. <laughs> yes. but that we called GPS for the soul. It is free. And you can download it and it gives you a proxy for your stress. And then you can create your own personalized guide that helps you course correct. It could be 
pictures of art or your loved ones, music, poetry, whatever it is that helps you remember that we are more than um, our preoccupations and our careers and right. all the things that weigh on us. Do, it, does it give a little bell or a ding? I know that there's some app that has a, a bell, like when we're in the midst. I know for myself, I can sit down and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to work for a half an hour. Two hours later, I might look up. I, 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 it just time just goes so fast when I'm at my computer or at my desk, and there's like these reminders. Like yes, this absolutely. You can have it uh, send you notifications to remind yourself to course correct. Because the truth, Justin, for me is that we all have that place in us of wisdom, peace, strength. And we've all experienced it, uh, however fleetingly, at some point in our lives. The second truth, though, is that most of the time we're not in that place. And we're never going to be in that place all the time. That's right. So the question is, how quickly can we course correct and return to that place? Exactly. Exactly. And I, I know that one of the things that popped for me in the book uh, that I had never heard of before is something called email apnea. Yes. <laughs> email apnea. So uh, I, I want to talk about that in just a moment uh, as we continue this discussion. I'm here with Ariana Huffington, and she is the author of Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. And if you'd like to know more about the book and, and the work that she does, you can go to Huffington Post com slash thrive or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org i'm justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions with Ariana Huffington, and she's the author of Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. And Ariana, I, I just mentioned something that I had never heard of before, sleep apnea. Uh, not sleep apnea, uh, email, email apnea. apnea. <laughs> uh, we're used to sleep apnea, but email apnea. So what? describe that, please. Email apnea is the phenomenon of just um, doing our email, responding to email, and getting so caught up in it that we don't even breathe. That I mean, not literally, because then we would be dead, but uh, we hold our breath. So I think we can deal with it by 
becoming more conscious when we are looking at email and even taking a breath and exhaling before we open a new email, just kind of establishing certain little routines right. that can make sure that we don't actually end up with email apnea. Right. I One of the things that I have on my computer screen is just the words, remember to breathe. I love that. And once to- in a while, I, my eye will catch that and I'll, ah, all yes. right. And just yes. even having a brief moment of a couple of deep breaths is really going to change our physiology. Absolutely. In fact, because I wanted the book not just to be an intellectual exercise where people can say, yes, I agree, I agree, but that it can actually be a way for us to integrate certain practices in our lives that can make it more likely that we will thrive. I have included a lot of these tips. And um, having a remember to breathe (laughs) note on your laptop or even your iPhone is actually a very good extra tip. What I'm suggesting is mini breaks during the day. It could be 30 seconds, it could be 60 seconds of literally stopping and focusing on the breath. I mean, the breath for me is uh, absolutely magical. And when we focus on the inhaling and exhaling and make it as deep a breath as possible, it has an immediate impact on our chatter, on our mind chatter, on our irritability, on all the things that can get in the way every day. And we're actually, you state some studies in the book of how we're actually more productive when we take those breaks. It's not that we're going to be less, it's taking away from our productivity. We're adding more productivity. We're adding more creativity, more, as you say, um, better health, better well-being. I think that is so important to stress. There is no trade-off between taking care of ourselves and our productivity and creativity. On the contrary, um, especially when it comes to people who are creative, uh, there is no question that uh, when we take time to reconnect with ourselves, it's going to have a very significant impact on our creativity. I mean, Steve Jobs um, talked about the fact that it was after Zen meditation that he often came up with his best ideas. And that also reminds me of something that you stress a lot in your book, and that is the benefits of good sleep. And I'm thinking of Einstein. He he talked about uh, some of his great ideas came to him in his in his sleep, in his dreams. So wh- how why is sleep important? Well, first of all, we have all the science now that shows that it is uh, a really key factor in our well-being, in our health. The connection between sleep deprivation and disease has now been established. Um, I actually discovered sleep (laughs) (laughs) after my collapse. And I went, it was my key, you know, they talk about keystone habits. That was the one keystone habit that I changed immediately. I Can went, you just say something? What is a keystone a key, habit? You know, we all talk about how do we change habits. And sometimes if you start with a key habit and you change that, then it makes it easier to change other habits. 
So the first habit that I changed was how much sleep I was getting. I went from four to five hours to seven to eight hours. And ironically, these last years since I did that have been the most productive years I had. Now, there you go. And now, one the, wouldn't think so. One no, would they say, would think, uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> my goodness, when are you going to get everything done? Exactly. In fact, you're much better at getting things done. You make fewer mistakes. <laughs> um, and, of course, when we make mistakes, we have to lose a lot of time just dealing with them. Bill Clinton, I quote him in the book, saying um, some of the worst mistakes I made in my life, he did not specify which, I made when I was exhausted. Yes, well, I'm thinking in our culture, it's a badge of honor to be working, overworking, and to be working so many hours, and to say, um, "Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not having to sleep. You know, I only sleep four hours a night." And I'm. It's like saying I'm so important that I'm so busy because I have so many demands on my super important life. So that's really what we need to change. Um, and it really goes back to what we value. Mm -hmm. um, if all we value is money and fame, then we're going to make these bad decisions that undermine our health and undermine our wisdom, which is the second pillar. Because after all, if we're not connected with our own wisdom, we are going to make bad decisions. Yes, and we see uh, all around us very successful, very smart leaders with high IQs in business, in politics, in media, making terrible decisions. The problem is not that they're not smart. The problem is that they're not wise. Well, you know, we in, in the Internet age, we have a lot of data, a lot of information coming at us all the time. And um, in fact... I just say, you're named after the goddess Athena uh, and, and the Greek goddess. And there's something about, she really manifests, she represents wisdom. So how, how do we coordinate data and information? And actually, what is your advice about bringing it into wisdom? Well, I think it's important to realize that Big data, which is now the, the new term that we are all using, is important, but it's not going to lead us to making the best decisions because what we're missing right now is not data and information. It's the ability to see through them to what matters. And, and in order to be able to do that, we need to reconnect with ourselves. That's basically the key. Well, and also, what about... Um some of the practices we can do, let's say meditation or gratitude practice? The practices that I mentioned in the book, and some people may be way along this path and some may be just starting. It doesn't matter where we are. I think there are specific little tips that we can use. I mean, on the well-being front, I would say that unless you're one of the people who actually already gets enough sleep, starting with getting 30 minutes more a day. I don't think we should be expecting ourselves to make huge changes right away because then we won't do them. Just That's small right. changes. That's an important point. Yes. 
Because then if we're not successful, it doesn't... Then, exactly. It, we, don't, we don't get that reward from success. So. We, we don't want to make that huge leap. We want to make those tiny changes and those... Then you mentioned that in your book, those tiny changes, tiny changes. and other people have mentioned this on New Dimensions, that this is this is a way to go. <laughs> yes, tiny changes. And then when we do the when we make these tiny changes, we get the reward. We see the, what happens because the truth is that we do have that wisdom uh, in us. So we we do connect with that, and then that in itself encourages to to make the changes bigger. So starting with just 30 minutes more uh, sleep, five minutes of meditation. If you haven't meditated before, and I know a lot of people listening to your program are already meditators, but start with five minutes. I was talking to my daughter today, who's a senior in college and who is struggling with beginning to meditate. And I said, just five minutes. And don't make it hard on yourself. Don't say, I have to sit cross-legged on the floor. You know, just wherever you are. I think that's such an important point, Ariana. It's those, even if you could just do five minutes four times a day, Yes, it really starts to establish the practice. Don't worry about those long... I remember years ago uh, when I first got in touch with meditation. This was back in the early 70s. And I was working with a Tibetan Lama, and he would have us do these 40-minute segments. And uh, I was saying to my partner, Michael, afterwards, I said, I'm just doing good to just stay awake for 40 <laughs> minutes and not go to sleep. And he said something to me that I always remembered. He said, oh, Justine, don't worry about those high Western achievers. You just do what you can do. And that was such good advice. Mm. And through the years, it's really helped me. So not to have to worry about doing it like someone else. Do it the way it works for us. Absolutely. That is so important, Justine. And also, don't judge yourself because we have the tendency to judge ourselves if we don't do it the way we think we should be doing. Like, I'm sitting here meditating and I fell asleep. Okay, clearly you were sleep-deprived. Great. Uh, I'm sitting here and I have thoughts coming. You're always going to have thoughts coming. Just uh, don't fight the thoughts. Just move beyond them. Uh, let them be and move beyond them. Don't identify with them. There are so many easy steps we can take if we really embrace them without judging ourselves. And boy, that inner that inner voice that just goes yes constantly. Uh, we're uh, if we if if we had if we said all of that out loud. It would just be shocking. We would never say that to another person, the no. judgments we make inside. And I call that voice in the book, the obnoxious roommate living in our head. And I wish somebody would come up with a little recorder to record that voice. Because you're absolutely right. Our worst enemy does not talk about ourselves the way we talk about ourselves inside our head. So we need to kind of educate that voice. I mean, for my my voice was very, 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 very loud and very sardonic. In fact, I was on Stephen Colbert's show recently, and I joked that my obnoxious remate sounded exactly like Stephen. 
<laughs> How did he take that? <laughs> he said, I immediately did not miss a beat. And he replied, I had to find a place to crash <laughs> in my head. So, but the point is that we can, by not identifying with a voice, that's the first step, we can learn to educate it the way you deal with a toddler. Right. And uh, by using humor, to find humor uh, is great. Humor, that's a good key. I'm here with Ariana Huffington, and she's the author of Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. And if you want to know more about the book and her work, you can go to HuffingtonPost.com slash thrive. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Ariana Huffington, and she is a founder of the Huffington Post, of which we all are connected, I'm sure. And her most recent book is Thrive, the Third Metric to Redefining Success and Creating a Life of Well-Being, Wisdom, and Wonder. And I, I would like to, there is a quote in the book, and I'd like to read it. It's from Ian Thomas, Thomas and he says, it just This quote just really describes the day for so many of us. He says, every day the world will drag you by the hand yelling, this is important, and this is important, and this is important. You need to worry about this, and this, and this. And each day it's up to you to yank your hand back, put it on your heart, and say, no, this is what's important. I, I love that quote. You read it so well. Oh, well, it, it means a lot <laughs> to me. It's, it, it's, we get dragged off like, a, like a, some wild horse running away with us, and, and then we find ourselves way off in the forest when we, but that, that, just that image of just stopping and putting our hand on our heart and coming back to ourselves. That and is beautiful, Justine, because the truth is that what is important is ultimately the incredible wisdom and wonder and soulfulness that we have inside us. And so often we think, no, what is really important is answering all your emails. Right. And then we miss that, and, and we miss the moment. My mother, who was incredibly wise, um, used to say to my sister and me all the time, don't miss the moment, which is really the heart of mindfulness and being present. Don't miss the moment. And when we miss the moment, we also miss life's wonder, which is the third pillar of the third metric. Because you walk around New York, where I live, you walk around the streets, and you can hardly see anybody now walking without either being on the phone or 
listening to music, or even worse, texting while walking, which is leading to a massive amount of accidents. And uh, I remember I was in Munich a few months ago, um, launching the Huffington Post in Germany. And on the way back to the airport, I was in the car, and it was raining. And uh, everything somehow seemed magical and uh, glistening. And I arrived at the airport, and everybody was complaining about the rain. They were complaining. And I thought to myself, you know, most days, in most cities, I too would be complaining about the rain. But somehow, that day, in that city, I kind of tuned into my own sense of wonder. You know, the the joy at the little things in life. I know you've written the book about the, the little pleasures, you know, the the little things, like it's raining. You're in a new city that I don't know well, and everything seems absolutely beautiful. Yes, yes. You you mentioned people walking around with their iPhones or whatever. I, I'm reminded of, of the, there's a very popular television show, The Walking Dead, and mm-hmm. it's like, the, it's it's a zombie movie, and and so here are all these people walking <laughs> around, you know, sort of shuffling down the sidewalk with their iPhone or whatever it is, their smartphone in front of them, and they're texting, and they're not seeing anything around them. It's like zombies walking around uh, in some ways. They're not noticing anything around them. And also, technology is made to be addictive. If you talk to people who make these apps and devices and features, they will tell you, this is not accidental. Right. (laughs) You know, it's made to be addictive. So that's why we need to recognize that we need to set some boundaries for ourselves. We're not just going to disconnect from technology just like that. I mean, my boundaries are, for example, no devices in my bedroom. Um, so when I get into bed, I read real books, which I love, and I can underline <laughs> Me them. Me too. I, I don't like the iBooks. I have to. I like to have the actual book in my yes. hand. Yeah. So whatever the ground rules that each person um, establishes, I mean, no devices during meals. Uh, there's the phone stacking game now in New York, where people. When they sit down in a restaurant, they put their phones all together on the table, and the first person who reaches for their phone pays the bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you talk about the the devices; they're addictive. It's we we know from brain studies, and I know that you mentioned this in the book, and we've had um, Rick Hansen on recently, really talking about this in depth. Uh, the brain loves novelty. So, so yes. something that attracts its attention, something new. It, it's a natural sequence of the brain patterns. So it, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some commitment and intention to say, okay, no devices in the bedroom or no devices during the meal or when yes. I'm meeting with someone. So it's going to take intention and commitment, and it's going to take the recognition that there is something else that's more important that we're missing. You know, the fear of missing out that teenagers and millennials talk about? We are missing out on the most important thing. 
And that's really what we need to recognize because when we recognize that, and that's why if we have a taste of it through meditation, through being present, then we are going to be encouraged to actually make these changes. If we don't have a taste of what I'm talking about, then it seems like, oh, there she is, or there he is talking about it or writing about it, but I haven't tasted it. Right. Yes. One of the things that you mention about that, this uh, third part of that, third, uh, the third metric, there are four parts to it. Uh, first, there was uh, self, what was well-being, well-being, then wisdom, and now we're talking about wonder. wonder. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that you brought up is in wonder, something that stimulates our sense of wonder is when we notice coincidences mm. when we notice something happening and oh my goodness just like like i recently was at a talk uh, with uh, jeff werner of uh, linkedin and i didn't know anyone in the room not a single person and i was talking to the man next to me and most of the time and then finally at the very end i turned around to the woman next to me and it turned out we knew each other. She was a guest host for New Dimensions 20 years ago. And uh, it was like, how did that happen? And she didn't even recognize me until she saw my name tag. And then there we were. So That's amazing. Those and we love coincidences. Even people who call themselves atheists, who don't um, care about any spiritual dimension, love coincidences, because there's the sense that we are not alone in the universe and that there is um, some blueprint. I love a lot of these quotes that I've included in the book, you know, the one from the Bible, not a sparrow falls, but that God is behind it. You know, the sense that we are not living in an indifferent universe, um, which is what a lot of, unfortunately, existential philosophers claimed we do. Right. And it reconnects us with the sense that there is something else, bigger than ourselves. And I love it that you you mention Ariadne's thread. This is the Greek myth of Ariadne and, and going through the labyrinth and the thread. And, and you pair that with the idea that when that thread that connects us all, it, which normally is invisible in our lives, when, when a coincidence happens, that thread of that connection becomes visible. It's so mysterious. Yes, I love that. Yes, exactly. It becomes visible. And even if the coincidences are trivial, they mean something to us. That I mean, means that, we have to be awake to notice them. Yes, that's definitely true. Another thing that stimulates our sense of wonder um has to do with how we approach death. Because death has become kind of a big unmentionable until recently when people started having um, dinner conversations over death. You know, there's this movement, death over dinner. Death over dinner, and also death death cafes. Death cafes. Yes. Uh, and uh, I love that because, of course, uh, Socrates famously said... Uh, a practice death daily, and the Romans would um, uh, put MM, memento mori, on statues and trees, not in a morbid way, but to remind ourselves of 
of the fact that we are all going to die, and therefore we might as well put everything in perspective. As the Onion headline put it, death rate halts steady at 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so that's great. Yes, that's great. And I remember when I was recently at a friend's memorial, listening to the eulogy, and suddenly being really struck by the fact that our eulogists have nothing to do with our resumes. Really? Precisely. You know, that's not what people talk about not, when no. they give an eulogy to people someone People don't who's talk died. about how much money the person had or how high up the career ladder he or she got. They don't say, you know, George was amazing. He increased market share by one third. Or she made SVP at 35, you know. Eulogies are about the other things. They're about the, the way the person made you feel, their generosity, their little kindnesses. All very different from the way we define success. Exactly, exactly. And so we someone, I, I don't remember who you quoted in the book. It might have been George Carlin, uh, but it was someone who talked about how it's we're always creating our eulogy yes. throughout our life. So if we just think about those things that really matter, our connection with others, our well-being, our connection into wisdom, what we are actually giving in the world. And I, your, your mother has been, you mentioned your mother, she has been such a mentor to you. So I'd love for you to say something about your just grandmother. So I kind of dedicated the book to my mother because she really lived a third metric life before I called it a third metric life. And her relationship with time was amazing. You know, she lived in with the rhythm of a child. We had um we had a blog post on the Huffington Post now that that really sort of summed my mother up. It was written by a special education teacher who um, woke up one morning and realized the two words she most often spoke to her six-year-old daughter were hurry up, hurry up and get dressed, hurry up and go to school, hurry up and go to bed. And that's also what we do to ourselves. Exactly. I want to continue with this in just one moment. I'm here with Ariana Huffington. She's the author of Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Ariana Huffington, and she's the author of Thrive, the Third Metric to Redefining Success and Creating a Life of Well-Being, Wisdom, and Wonder. And we're, we were talking about your amazing mother. And one of the things that you, you talked about how time, she really stretched time. But another thing, a story that was amazing to me, we were talking about death earlier. And as she was coming into her last time on this planet, she did something which you call the Last Supper. I would love for you to describe that to our listeners. Yes, yeah, so the day she died, of course, we didn't know that was the day she would die. She had been very sick. She was at home, and she told my sister and me that she wanted to go to this great grocery store in Los Angeles where she could buy food from around the world. So she went there and bought a lot of food, and she was very frail, and she got back home, and she laid it all in the kitchen, you know, Greek delicacies and Viennese chocolates and just a real feast, and invited everybody, you know, the housekeeper, the people who worked in my home office, and said, let's all share this meal. And for her, there was no hierarchy. All her life, you know, she always treated people the same. I remember uh, when I was dating a, an English member of parliament when we lived in London, and one night he brought in uh, Ted Heath, then prime minister, for dinner. And my mother was in the kitchen. She was always in the kitchen cooking, and a plumber was there because something had gone wrong. So she asked the plumber what he thought of the prime minister. And the plumber said, oh, not very much. He hasn't really been good for working people. So my mother said, okay, let me bring him in so you can tell him directly. And for her, that was completely simple. That's a natural thing. That's how life should be. So that, um, a few hours later, she collapsed on the floor. But she she knew that was the end. But she didn't want us to take her to the hospital. So she told my sister and me that she was fine, that she would just sit on the floor for a little while and let's open a bottle of wine and just sit there and talk. And my two daughters at the time were young and they were running around on some um, a scooters, a scooters that yeah. we had bought them. And uh, So here your mother is on the floor. You and your sister are there with her. Your two daughters are galloping around, around the house, yes. but, you know, in a natural way. And, and such a powerful scene that you describe there about death and the ease it can be. Yes, because sometimes we just make death um, so impersonal and technological. And even when we can no longer prolong life, um, we just put people on machines And it's much harder to just have a natural passing. I mean, everybody has to make their own decisions. And at the time, certainly, as her daughters, we're very torn. Of course. But she was so strong. And, you know, she was a very strong woman. She had stood up to the Germans in the Second World War when she was in the mountains hiding Jewish girls. And she was surrounded by Germans and they... 
asked her, do you have any juice here? And she moved forward and said, there are no juice here. Put your guns down. And they did. <laughs> she was uh, fierce. fierce. She could be very fierce. Exactly. Very courageous. And so that when she said to me, do not call the ambulance, I'm fine, I knew I had to obey her. Yes. And then she passed with ease. And then she passed with ease, yes. And, uh, and when she passed... A lot of the things, that was in 2000, a lot of the things that she embodied for me, her relationship with time, the fact that she could not have an impersonal relationship with any human being, all those things became things that I knew I had to integrate uh, more thoroughly into my own life. You talk about her as, uh, first of all, that she taught you meditation at a very early age, and very young, before it was all the rage in Western culture. She um, Also, you talk about her as she would bring all sorts of goodies, like she'd go to the doctor's office. She, uh-huh. would, she would have a fruit basket that she would give to everyone, and, and she would talk to cab drivers. And, I mean, going, walking, being with her and traveling around, you just have to let go of time, don't you? Yes, you had to let go of time, and you're right. She was always bringing things to people. And, and if anybody came home, whether it was the FedEx man or a parent picking up my daughter— she would invite them to the, her kitchen, her laboratory, right. and and say, "Hey, I just cooked this. Sit down and have something." And her her food was an offering for her. So she had this natural ability to be hospitable to the entire world, <laughs> so yes, to speak. Yes, and and I remember somebody once that she didn't really know. I admired a necklace she was wearing. And she said to her, okay, have it. And um, and the woman said, oh, that's so sweet of you. What can I give you back? And my mother said, it's not a trade, darling. It's an offering. <laughs> Just beautiful. A wise, wise woman. We're, we're talking about really, we're getting into that giving part of the the. The third metric, the giving part, the first part, well-being, wisdom, wonder, and now giving. And uh, let's say something about giving. And there's a term that's used, social entrepreneur. What's a social entrepreneur? So there are many ways to give. Um, A lot of people now who become social entrepreneurs give by combining what makes business work, you know, business practices with making a positive impact in the world. It could be in this country, it could be anywhere around the world. Whenever there's a need, food, clean water, eyeglasses, whatever, it can also be a business if you run it primarily in order to have a positive impact. And the giving is really perhaps the one pillar of these four that brings it all together. Like there is no life that is really fulfilling and where you're really thriving if there is no giving there. So what you're saying is that we can do all of our inner work, we can meditate, we can go to our gratitude practice, we can do all of that. But if we're not making an impact of the in the world, how, what good is that? It's like it's living in a cave. Right. And it can be, again, it doesn't have to mean leaving your home and going to Rwanda to run an orphanage, although... I really deeply admire people who do that. It can be, it can mean 
when you get up in the morning, how personal are your connections with people? Are there any small kindnesses, acts of generosity that you practice that day? So it doesn't have to be turning your life upside down, but it can be transforming your life by recognizing our connection with other people. And if we can make one life a little easier, if we can make one person breathe a little easier, that's giving. So we need to recognize that it doesn't have to be grand. It can be very, very small, but significant. I remember someone on the program years ago was describing just what you're saying in that that uh, I think Michael was hosting and then saying something about, well, how can we help somebody in Rwanda or, or in India or something? And, and this person said, you know, look for what is close to you. Yes. Look, at, look at your own environment and see where you can make a difference right there. It's that that's, was the advice. I love that. It's what is underfoot. What is right there that often we are missing, right? And uh, and that's something that we can incorporate in our lives. And interestingly enough, at any moment in our lives, even at a moment when we are at our lowest, I write in the book about a friend of mine who lost her job, and she had always had a job. And I said, well, you know, now as you are looking for another job, I said this might be a good time to go to a place called home. Um, which is a place for at-risk children in South Central Los Angeles, and volunteer. And at first she looked at me like I was completely heartless. I mean, she's looking for a job. You're telling me to volunteer? Yeah. I said it will really make a difference. And she did it. And it made a difference on so many levels. First of all, it put her own problems in perspective. She was telling me how they would do this circle every night and they would forgive, a forgiveness circle. And she forgave her daughter for forgetting her birthday. And the young woman next to her forgave her father for killing her mother. So suddenly it was even easier to find a job because she was no longer feeling that somehow the life wasn't fair, that look what happened to her. And when we live life from that place of grace and trust, Good things happen. And when bad things happen, we are in a much stronger position to deal with them. And one of my favorite uh, quotes in the book is from Rumi, who said, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor. I love that quote. Live life as if everything is rigged in your, in your favor. favor. I, I just love that. It just is, it gives us so much hope and optimism for the future, even when we're in the midst of, of the cauldrons, so, yes. so to speak. Yeah. Well, uh, Ariana, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions guest family. I want to thank you very much. This was absolutely wonderful. Thank you for um, all the heart that you put into what you're doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Ariana Huffington. She is the founder of Huffington Post, and she is also, her recent book is Thrive, the Third Metric to Redefining Success and Creating a Life of Well-Being, Wisdom, and Wonder. And if you'd like to know more about the book and her work, you can go to HuffingtonPost.com slash 
thrive. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3499. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.